So Jesus actually wrote us a letter that talks about uh, the elder installation process that we're about to read in a minute. Um, but before we do, have you ever seen this picture? You ever seen that? It doesn't really look like a whole lot, which is sort of the point. Uh, this is a picture taken by, uh, well, under the inspiration of Carl Sagan. Uh, he suggested that Voyager 1, which was the satellite that was being launched into outer space, that as it was exiting the Earth's atmosphere and exiting our solar system, it would turn an about face and take a picture of what it saw. And this is a picture of what it saw. This was taken on Valentine's Day of 1990, so again, it's not the best picture, uh, but I want to draw your attention to one little speck. That was impeccable timing. <laughs> Carl Sagan called this the pale blue dot. And he would go on to say in this book that he wrote called Pale Blue Dot, uh, he said, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's earth. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of the joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, forager Every hero, every coward, every creator, every destroyer of civilization, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived here on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in a great enveloping cosmic darkness. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've known. This book of Revelation that we jumped into last week is an attempt to pull us up and give us a new perspective on our lives, to pull us out of our everyday experience and zoom out, as it were, at the edge of the solar system and turn an about face and take a picture and say, this is actually what's true. Now, the best that our worldly wisdom can give us is Carl Sagan. To look back and look at the insignificance of that pale blue dot and say, well, life is short and we all live right there and it's otherwise meaningless, so be nice to each other. But what Revelation does is it gives us a new vision of what else is out here. What else is actually over and above our solar system, over and above the universe and the galaxies and the planets and the stars and everything that is and was and will be. 
And so we're zooming out today and getting a perspective of, of what does Jesus see? What is he doing? What is he up to? And what does he see? And so we're going to read quite a bit uh, from a couple of different sections of Revelation 1 and Revelation 4. Susie, you ready? This is a two-pager, so buckle up. (laughs) Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 20. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and perils of thunder, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, 
who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The word of the Lord. Okay, preach a sermon on that, Pastor. Sheesh. Uh, this kind of feels like when your two-year-old colors with a full fist of a crayon and then hands it to you. And look how beautiful it is. That's kind of what it feels like to preach a sermon on what we just read. But we're going to do our best and trust that really the power is in the Word. Uh, and so we're going to trust that His Holy Spirit will continue to move uh, through what we've just heard together. We're going to focus on two words to try to narrow in on, uh, on one thing for the sake of our time together today. We're going to focus on two particular words, and they're t- the two commands. Because as we just read, it says, blessed are those who hear. This is chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written. And so there is something that we just read that we are supposed to hear, internalize, and then do something with. So we're going to focus on the two words that are commands, imperatives, that say, do this, church. And they are, one, fear not, and two, behold. Fear not, behold. One from each of these two visions. So if you remember from last week, Revelation... The revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 1, verse 1. This is saying that there, is, there are not many revelations that are all meant to speak different things. Like I mentioned that last week, this is more like there's a diamond, and that diamond is Jesus. And we're, we're all, in all of these 21 chapters, 22 chapters, we're looking at that diamond who is Jesus from different perspectives. But they all are ultimately pointing to him and his glory, and his power, and his beauty, and then what we're supposed to do in response to it. Because the word revelation is the word apocalypse, which just means an unveiling. And so the revelation of Jesus Christ is just a description that this is an unveiling of who Jesus really is. We have the picture of him in his earthly, humanly life, and now we get a picture of him in his glorious glorified, still human, but divine state. And then verse 3 goes on to say that this book is a prophecy. Now, that's another one of those words that can throw us into a tangent that isn't necessarily exactly what the word prophecy means. We hear prophecy and we think something along the lines of rubbing the crystal ball and trying to figure out from a fortune teller like who we're going to marry or what the winning lotto numbers are. This is not that. A prophecy by Old Testament standards, which is where the majority of the prophecies, the prophetic books lie, prophecies were written from God through his prophets to a particular people at a particular time, calling them to, very similar to this, to respond to it. And usually the prophets came, such as Ezekiel, when Israel had lost everything. 
and they were exiled in a foreign land, and they were confused. And the reason they were exiled was because they were boneheads, and they were messing everything up, and they were forgetting God, and they were worshiping pagan idols, and their life and their city was falling apart. And so God speaks into that moment and says, come back to the Lord. Come back. Remember who you are and whose you are. Repent. Believe. Obey. And in a similar way, this prophecy now is spoken to this particular people at this particular time, which we talked about last week, and you can go back and listen to that uh, if you missed it, for a particular purpose, and that is to call them out of something and in to something. So there is something to do is the point with this. Vision one then. This is the vision found in chapter 1, uh, and it is this vision of a son of man. To pick up where we left off last week, if you remember, it was kind of a cliffhanger at the end of last week. Uh, the, the passage that we read last week said, and I heard a trumpet, and then I turned around. And the cliffhanger was, what is he seeing? And we don't know, or we didn't know last week. And now we've been given this description. Here's what he sees. He says, I turn around and saw one like a son of man. What in the world does that mean? One like a son of man. This is also the same way that Jesus described himself in John 1. This is also the same John who is now writing this. So this language is now passing through and Jesus is adopting it again to describe this is who I am. To be a son of man predominantly just meant I'm a guy. I'm a human. And John sees this human, but he is a human unlike any other human. He doesn't say he is a son of man. He says he is the son of man. He is the perfection of humanity in bodily form. And then we begin to see as John is like scrambling for images to try to pull together. If you've ever seen, gone to the Grand Canyon or seen the Northern Lights and you're trying to pull at all of these, well, it was kind of like this and it was kind of like that and it was kind of reminding me of this. That's what John is doing. He's pulling and grasping to try to describe this is the Jesus that I saw. I knew it was him because remember, this is John. This is like Jesus's boy. This is the guy who Jesus loved, who he would recline next to him after dinner. This is his boy, and yet he, know, he recognizes this as Jesus, and yet at the same time he sees that this is something very different than his previous experience of him. And it goes on to describe he's wearing this priestly robe. He's wearing a kingly sash that normally, if you're girded up to go to battle, is around your waist. Instead, it's up towards his chest, which is the sense of he's at rest. He's totally okay with what's happening in the world right now and has everything under control. It says uh, that he had hair that was white like snow. He had this ageless hair describing his wisdom, describing that he has no beginning and no end. He has all-seeing eyes of fire. More to come on that in a little bit. These solid feet of burnished bronze that cannot be moved. A voice like Niagara Falls. Seven stars in his hand. Face shining like lightning. And a sword coming out of his mouth denoting the power of his word. The word that we just read. We can't talk about every part of that image. 
And in some ways, we're not supposed to necessarily like parse every, well, what does this mean? And what does this mean? Although there is a collective image that is being drawn up. And I want to focus on one particular part of that image, and that is the seven stars that he's holding in his hands. Because this collective image of a king sitting on a throne with priestly robes, with all ownership over all things, with the whole world as it were, stars and galaxies in his hand, even that pale blue dot, is an image that didn't come out of nowhere. It's an image that is borrowed from and a counteroffensive to what was happening in the day that this was being written and that John saw this vision. This was an image of one who was like, who was in control, who had all power, who, despite what everyone else would, would think, that he knew exactly what was going on at all times. It was an image of one very similar to the other gods that were in the Roman pantheon. The other gods like Apollo. This god Apollo, in certain images, has the sun in his hand. And as the one who has the sun in his hand, he is one who is in charge of all things. Domitian, the guy who is the Roman emperor, who's the reason that John is where he says he is, is this image of, there's an image of his son minted on a coin. And his son is seated, and above him are seven stars. So you see, he's borrowing these images from the culture, and he's saying, you think Domitian's son is the Lord and God? No, no, no. Jesus is the Lord and God. He is the one who has all things in his hands. And all this imagery is being confrontive to the powers that the Romans and the pagans and those in their culture believe to be the ones in charge. And we look at that today and we go, oh, those poor, those poor Romans. And they thought there were all these other gods and they worshiped and venerated them or they worshiped the stars and thought they could see into the future from following the patterns of the stars. Poor them. Oh, gosh. And yet the same thing happens in your heart and in my heart on a daily basis. Because we may not be venerating these gods out here, but we certainly are venerating the God right here. We need, in the same way, we need this polemic attack against the God of ourselves, against the God of consumerism, against the God of individualism, against the God of materialism in our day and age, as John was speaking into the day and age of the Romans. Because we envision ourselves robed in the finest of fashions. And with the wisdom of the internet in the palm of our left hand. And the all-seeing eyes of the 24-hour news cycle. And the solid footing of our wealth and our status and our competency. And voices and hands that will impose our will to get what we want. This is the image that Jesus is confronting us with and saying, you do not have the power that you think you do. It's really easy when life's going well 
to believe that deification of yourself. It's easy when everything is going smooth that I made this happen. Way to go, me. It's only when life begins to fall apart, when something confronts you and challenges you, when your body begins to break down and steals your invincibility that you believe you have, when a job loss threatens the stability that you believe you have built for your life, when your marriage or your parenting or a relationship that is difficult with a family member or a friend challenges the autonomy that you believe that you can make happen. That's when our deities get rocked. That's when our idols get shaken. Where right now, for you, might God be coming against your deity of self? Where might he, in some very sovereign way, be putting a challenge in your life? An easy way to say it is, what's going wrong for you right now? What's a part of your life that you wish was not a part of your life? Is it possible that that is not an accident? Is it possible that if that Jesus who we just read about has the entire world in his hands, that that pale blue dot is in complete control of his sovereign power, that there could be a reason why you may be being challenged right now? And it could actually be to realize, like John did, to get to a place of hitting your face and going, I can't do it. I can't. I'm done. We call that a severe mercy. Because it's severe because it hurts, but it's a mercy because it's exactly what you and I need to wake us and shake us from the slumber when we believe that this world is all there is. That, and that what I can do and the power that I bring is the only thing that will make any kind of difference in my life. But Jesus is saying, wake up! There's something so much bigger than what you can control in your hands. There's something so much more powerful than what you can cobble together. Now, if we get a vision like that of Jesus, if this image of his power and glory that we just read begins to sit on us, and we see all those places internally where we have tried to shirk around and be our own God instead of allowing him to be that God, we'll do the exact same thing as John and hit our face and go, whoa, is me. I can't believe that I am in the power of such glory. Like the Israelites when they're at the base of Mount Sinai and God is coming on the top of the mountain in fire and thunder and wind and storm and lightning. So he comes in this moment. And if, if you have ever had a time or a place, usually they come when some part of your life is being challenged and falling apart. When you can come to him in that kind of a place and go, woe is me, I've really blown it. I've sinned in an extravagant way. I've squandered my money. I've squandered my time. I haven't treated other people well. I have been the center of my own life instead of allowing other people or you to be the center of my life. Woe is me. 
but of everything we just read, I want you to focus on verse 17 of chapter 1. Because look what Jesus does. As John hits his face, Jesus, in a sense, puts the stars down. He puts the world down. And he lays his right hand on John and says, fear not. I died, and behold, I'm alive, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The same hand that is holding the whole world now rests on the shoulder of John, not by way of crushing him, but by way of lifting him up. And he rests his hand on his shoulders, and he rests his hand on your shoulder this morning and says, peace, peace to whatever chaos you find yourself in. Peace to whatever you find inside of yourself that you wish were not there but is. Peace to wherever you have blown it this week. Peace to whatever is in your past that you wish was not a part of your past. Peace to your worries of the future that you don't know what will happen. Peace. And in the strong arm of Jesus, we can rest. Because, why? He says, I died. The glorious, eternal Jesus was also a man. And that man succumbed to death. Just that statement as it is should bring us to wonder. God died. What? Why? He died so that he could take all of the ways that we have idolized ourselves and bury them. All of the ways that we have deified our own power and ability and appearance and killed them and brought them to the grave, resurrecting them. What does he says? I have the keys of death and Hades. We have an unlimited freedom that we now have at our disposal. We have an unlimited freedom to love and have joy and laugh and play because we are no longer defined by what we do but what Jesus has done. He's paid the penalty for our idolatry, and he has freed us from worshiping these fake things that cannot hold the weight of the, of the world and the responsibilities and the difficulties that we face. Only Jesus can hold that kind of weight. And he stands not far off and far away, but the image is around seven lampstands, which is an image of the seven churches in their day, which is this image of he is among you. He's in your life. He's in your bedroom. He's on your way to work. He's in this room right now. He's with you in your workplace. He's with you as your parent. He's with you in all the places that you wish he wouldn't see. And he's with you in all your glories. And in every one of those things, in both our highs or our lows, he is one who puts his hand on our shoulders and continues to guide us forward. That's image one. Image two, much more shortly. Whoa. Wow. Okay. Here we go. Image two. Vision. So, fear not is the command that he gives there. In all of that, he tells his people, fear not because I'm with you. Secondly, behold. Now, John comes back to his normal frame of mind for a minute, and then not sure how long this goes on, and then he hears this voice again and says, come on up again. Jesus got some more to show him. And so he says, okay, goes back into this vision state, and he says, verse 2, behold, 
which is that word. And he's saying, behold to all of us. He's saying, look at what I see. Behold a throne. Look. There's a throne that is inhabited by a king. That throne is encircled by a rainbow. That the rainbow is encircled by 24 elders with glorious robes and crowns. And they are encircled by seven spirits. And they are encircled by four creatures. Symbolically representing this is the future reality. This is every part of creation reconciled, made right, perfect shalom, holy, healthy, and happy. Here it is. This is where we're all headed. Not a never-ending worship service, but a glorious new heavens and a new earth where all of creation is made right before him. And he's saying, that's your future. And then he points to the elders, just to focus on one part of the image again. He focuses on the 24 elders. What are the 24 elders doing? They are hitting their face, and they are casting their crowns. They are clothed in white garments and golden crowns, and he is saying, so are you in Christ. For all who have trusted in him, so are you clothed in his royal robes. So are you crowned with being a co-heir adopted as a family member of a king, of the king of the universe. This is a picture of who you are. Ephesians 2 says we're already seated with him in heavenly places. So that's true of our future, and that's also true of our now. And so he says, behold, keep looking, because you're going to look at your life, and you're going to think none of those things are true. I'm not clean. I'm dirty. My life is falling apart. It's a mess. I'm not in control of anything. I have nothing to give. But in Christ, you have everything. You have an eternal inheritance. You have a, a home that is kept in heaven for you. You have the Spirit of God changing you from the inside out every day. You have the riches of an inheritance that now allows you to be extremely generous with everything that you have been given. This is a picture of who we are and John says, behold, look at it. Don't forget about it. Because every morning, you're going to go back. You're going to wake up, and you're going to think, I have nothing. I am nothing. Behold, this is who you are in Christ. So one of my favorite dead guys, he was a pastor and a theologian. He died in 1996. Uh, <clears throat> and his name's Jack Miller. And he used to say these two things. Uh, and we'll end it here. He used to say, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you could ever imagine. And cheer up. You're a more love than you could ever dare hope. Behold, you're a worse sinner than you can imagine. There's things going on in your heart. There's reasons for why you do what you do that if you were to parse to the depths of those things, you would see, oh my gosh. Jesus sees those. And Jesus reinvents those. He resurrects those. He is making you new in Christ every day, more and more like your heavenly future will be. Cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you thought. And cheer up. You're more loved than you could ever dare dream. So we can fear not, and we can behold. I'm going to finish with a story uh, that I came across in a book. It's a story of Sadhu, he's an Indian man 
that is telling this story of his encounter with Jesus. Uh, as a boy, he had come to hate Jesus. His, uh, as missionaries passed through his village, he threw mud on them. He would burn their Bibles and their tracts that they would give out. But he had this terrible rest, unrest inside of himself that there was something that he was missing out on. He felt extremely unhappy. But all of that unhappiness was being unleashed at all of these people who were trying to give him hope. He found himself burning a Bible for his sort of religious zealousy. And then uh, woke up early the next day and asked God, if you're real, show me that you're real. Tell me that you're real. And he wanted to know if there was life after death. And he figured the only way I can decide if there's life after death is to die. And so he determined to kill himself. And in that moment, as he's plotting his own suicide, he said this, I plan to throw myself in front of a train which passed by my house. Then suddenly something unusual happened. The room was filled with a beautiful glow and I saw a man. I thought it might be Buddha or some other holy man. Then I heard a voice, how long will you deny me? I died for you. I've given my life for you. Then I saw his hands, the pierced hands of Jesus Christ. This was the Christ I had imagined as a great man who once lived in Palestine but died and disappeared. And yet now he stood before me alive. I saw his face looking at me with love. Three days ago, I had burned a Bible, and yet he was not angry. I was suddenly changed. I saw him as Christ, the living one, the savior of the world. I fell on my knees and knew a wonderful peace, which I had never found anywhere before. That was the happiness I had been seeking for such a long time. And then the people who he's telling this story to say, well, what did he look like? And this is his response. His eyes are so beautiful. And the narrator who's telling the story says, since then I've longed to see his eyes. We see Jesus' eyes here on us, calling us out of whatever fear, of whatever anger, whatever anxiety we may be feeling right now into a new life where he is on the throne with his hand on our shoulder, calling us to fear not and behold him. Let's pray. So Father, I pray that you would in some way use these feeble attempts to communicate something more glorious than I can get my head around. Would you use your word in power to de describe more to our hearts your beauty? Would you use your word to sink down deep in our hearts? And would we meet, would the real you meet the real us? As we worship you, we pray that that would happen and that you would communicate more. Fear not, behold, in your name.